Good morning, everyone. Wonderful to be here. Lovely to have you all here. Um, Jonathan's picture, I, we could just leave it at that. Um, that but we're going to fill in the, uh, the screw, what is the screwdriver and what touches the door open today. Today we're dealing with guilt and shame. Um, would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word? We do this as a sign of humility and as an acknowledgement that God himself is speaking to us here today through his word. This is Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the reading so far of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, what can we say about the privilege of hearing your word? It is the grace of life to us that we can hear the message of your love toward us in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the power of your word, and I pray that by it you will act savingly in the hearts of those who hear it. Would you bring healing to those members of your church with wounded hearts? And would you bring salvation to the hearts of those who do not yet know you? Amen. A greetings to each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, the name which is above all other names. I extend a special welcome to our visitors here today. I, um, it's my, my prayer that uh, God's word will um, be a great joy and encouragement to you and that the members of this church will uh, welcome you here today. Um, if you've not been with us here before, we have tea and coffee and fellowship through these doors at the end, so it would be lovely to, to have you to, to join us there. So the title of today's sermon is uh, Shame and Salvation, the God who does not help those who help themselves. Now, I'm sure many of you here have heard this phrase, God helps those who help themselves. It's often well meant, but it's usually said in error. You see, the testimony of Scripture is precisely the opposite, that God helps those who cannot help themselves. He rescues perishing sinners from their otherwise hopeless situation. And he makes them living sons and daughters, and he secures their salvation forever. Uh, there have been many tragic events in human history. Multiple mass murders, genocides, horrendous plagues, acts of terror, wars, apartheid, slavery, a variety of natural disasters, nuclear attacks, and all other manners of tragedy. But there is an event, the seriousness and pervasive of which, surpasses all of these. That's quite a statement, I realize. But this event is the precise cause of all those other events. This event is the fall of mankind into sin. It is the moment where man first abandoned trust in God and instead believed the devil. And by it, sin and death entered the world. Now, whilst the main principle of the sermon is contained in the two verses we've read so far, the context actually stretches right to the start of the chapter. So um, if you have a Bible with you, would you please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had, had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden. 
But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I was, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave uh, to me, ate, uh, gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, much like when we look through the text of Exodus 17, where Moses struck the rock at Horeb, we will again be parachuting into a specific time in history today. In fact, it is a time just after the very beginning of history itself. Uh, whilst the account of creation is not specifically the subject matter that we're going to, to deal with today, it is the beginning of all things. And given that it immediately precedes our text, it would be appropriate to spend a few minutes there. So this third chapter describes the spiritual and social state of man and how it came to be so. But the first two chapters of Genesis describe the physical state of the world and how it came to be. Lord willing, I plan to do a series at some point on the inerrancy and the, that scriptures without error and the authority of scripture at some point. Um, but today we have the privileged opportunity to touch on a, on a few things related to that. Scripture begins with a test of sorts. 
your view of the opening chapters expose your view towards Scripture in general. Either the biblical text is a perfect account of everything that it claims to account for, or it is fallible from the start. Either you believe what it says, or you begin to make it say what you wish it to say. Let's phrase this another way. Christians often treat Scripture as clay in their hands, molding it into whatever shaped idol is most pleasing to them. Now, this idolatry takes many forms, some of which are distorted views of the church, the prosperity gospel, illegitimate divorce, the endorsement and even celebration of homosexual acts and relationships, sex before marriage, legalism, polygamy, and many others. But those led into truth by by Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, know that the Bible is not clay to be molded. It is a solid rock. It is the immutable, the unchangeable truth that God has graciously given to us. Now, these believers know that it is, in fact, we who are the clay and God who is the potter. Now, I believe the biblical account of a literal six 24-hour days creation, a literal Adam and Eve, a literal spiritual fall into sin, a literal Jesus Christ, who was literally fully man and literally fully God, his literal atonement for my literal sin and his literal crucifixion, his literal raising from the dead after three days, his literal ascent into literal heaven, his literal reign and intercession for me, a literal judgment for all the living and for all the dead, a literal hell for all those not found in Christ, a literal new body and glorification for believers, a literal inheritance of all things as a co-heir with Christ, and a literal eternity beholding the face of my King, worshipping in His presence and the joy of His perfection forever. So, my brothers and sisters, what do you believe? Well, that's great, wonderful. Now, I realize that believing all these things as accounts, literal accounts, effectively discredits me intellectually amongst most of the people of this world. But what could possibly possess me to care about that for a moment? Do I really want my credibility to come from those people who, the very people who deface, corrupt, defile, and blaspheme the truth? Those people who are haters of God, that's Romans 1.30, they're set up against the knowledge of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. Romans 1.22 says, Claiming to become wise, they became fools. And Romans 1.28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind in order to do what ought not to be done. And Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And Isaiah 2.22 says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Of what account is he? Wow. But then, we're still going, but then, how does a person obtain real knowledge? Real wisdom. Well, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So let us approach our text today as we should approach every other text of Scripture with awe and reverence of the fact that God is speaking to us today without error and with all authority in the heavens and the earth. It is indeed very sad, although entirely expected, 
that the unbelieving mind denies the biblical account of creation. They are robbed of the joy of the knowledge of the truth and blinded to the glories of God. But what's even more sad is that many Christians deny the biblical account. They deny the perspicuity, which is the clarity of Scripture, and the accuracy and and inerrancy of Scripture in its very opening pages. That is why all manner of heresies have sprung from people who take this account. They have opened wide the gate in their heart through which they gladly receive the devil, saying to them, Did God really say? And if you refuse to believe what God says in the opening pages of Scripture... Why should you believe what he says in the rest of it? And we end up prostituting the rest of it to meet our corrupted desires. Also, a natural consequence of denying the account of creation is to deny the next major event in Scripture, the fall of man. Again, we would expect the unbelieving mind to deny this too, but once more again, what's horrendous as a surprise is that many Christians seem to deny this account. There are many who argue that there wasn't a literal fall of Adam and Eve, but that this was merely a metaphor to illustrate the fallenness of man. Now, this is actually a surprisingly common belief. But its prevalence makes sense. You, you have to deny this in order to accommodate denying the creation of the world, according to the biblical account. And what this means, basically, is that we'll have to rewrite the Bible. And this is what all the famous heretics of new and of old have done. They have rewritten the text. Did God say? Now, as John MacArthur quite humorously points out, if this is the case, and there wasn't a literal fall, God would, we would have to rewrite the Bible having God walking around just saying to himself, not Adam, where are you, but no, where did I put my metaphor? <laughs> See, it doesn't make sense. See, in in, in Luke chapter 3, Adam's included in the genealogy of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, The first man, Adam, became a living being. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. So if we determine that Adam was only a metaphor, then why are all those in the genealogies that follow not merely metaphors? Why is Christ not a metaphor? And don't think that hasn't been suggested. Why is this so important to us? Well, that's a great question. If all of this is metaphorical, we now have an opening for all manners of ways unto salvation. But as we looked at a few weeks ago, there is only one way to salvation. One gate, one mediator, one name by which all men may be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If we dispense with this biblical account of creation and of the fall, then we need to dispense with the biblical account of salvation, sanctification, And glorification, we are nowhere dead in the water, folks. Hopeless, lost. But all these biblical accounts are true. And this is good news because today's message is God's very grace to your lives, whether you're a believer or not. As a a Christian, you can receive God's promised comfort to you. And if you're not, then you will hear the good news of the gospel the way to salvation and eternal life with God who has made a way for you to be saved from your sin and its accompanying guilt and shame. All right, so God is gracious to all of humanity in some sense. In theology, we call this common grace. Scripture points to this when it says, God causes it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes 
the sun to rise and everybody benefits. He provides medicine, technological breakthroughs. But there are many graces that are particular, that are specific. They are not available to all of mankind. Grace by nature is something that's not required to be provided. That's what makes it grace. So the general graces I spoke about are an indication of God's general care for creation, that he loves in some sense what he has made. But specific graces are an expression of God's particular covenantal love. And these are only towards his people, only available to believers. Only God, God only promises to cover the shame of his children, of his people. It is only for his people he makes atonement and covers their sin. This we call God's filial love, the love with which he loves his people specifically. So as regards the work of Christ, chapter 3 of Genesis, which we just read, is likely the most prophetically rich chapter in the Old Testament, second to Isaiah 53. And I'll tell you why. In this chapter is contained all the necessary conditions for salvation. Now, I acknowledge that's not immediately evident from the text that we, that we read. And it would be very easy to read this as just a sequence of events and kind of what happened. But as we take a closer look, I think you'll come to see that this chapter is what theologians call the proto-euangelion, which means the first sign of the gospel. It's the picture. So euangelion means... It's a Greek word for gospel. It's the picture of the good news that we have right here in Genesis chapter 3. Now the Bible teaches that there are four conditions, broadly speaking, which are necessary for salvation. Two relate to the activity of man, and two relate to the activity of God. For God, these would be making atonement and providing eternal security. And for man, these would be faith and repentance. What is remarkable is that each one of these is evident in this chapter, hidden in a shadow and a type, like much of the Old Testament, but they're there. Now, obviously, far more is said about the gospel as we go through Scripture. You see, Scripture doesn't move from error to truth. It moves from incomplete to complete revelation. And so we have an an eschatology, an escalation in, in revelation from the very first words to the very last words of Scripture. Uh, we, we have the writings that follow next, the wisdom literature, the prophetic books, and they, they all begin to, to foreshadow Christ more completely. And then, of course, we have the full and the glorious revelation of Christ in the Gospels and expanded on throughout the remainder of the New Testament. But there is enough in the third chapter of, of Genesis to understand how God plans to accomplish salvation and enough for Adam and Eve to be saved. So what happened immediately after Adam and Eve disobeyed God? Well, they knew that they had sinned and they were filled with shame. They knew that they were guilty, they were exposed, they were naked. And we need to understand something here. Guilt is not so much a feeling. It is a legal reality of having transgressed something. Right? The consequence of which is shame. In other words, shame is the consciousness or the awareness of guilt. Perceived or real. 
and it affects everything. And we should expect so because sin affected everything. It, affected, it extended to creation, all the way through to creation, the whole of the, heaven, uh, whole of the physical heavens and the earth. It affects humans bodily. We get sick and we die. It affects us mentally. It's estimated that around 80% of non-neurological mental illnesses cases are related to shame. And it affects us spiritually. Our soul will die. The soul that sins shall die. It's Ezekiel 18.20. So Adam and Eve should have felt ashamed because they were guilty. Before the fall, they were right with God. And so being known by God was um, comfortable, natural, joyous, right? To be exposed, to be completely known was right because they had nothing to hide. And then they sinned. They felt the effects of sin immediately, the pressing of evil on, on their hearts. And instinctively, they knew they were not right with God. And that if they were, if they were known by him, he would know their sin. And so they were ashamed. They were guilty. They were condemned. And how did they respond to this? Verse 7. They made loincloths out of fig leaves. They tried to cover their own shame. But it did not work. How do I know this? Let's look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Why did they do that? It's because the fig leaf undies did not work. They knew that despite their best efforts to cover up, they were not worthy of God's presence because of their sin. You cannot be in the presence of the Holy One dwelling in sin. And they understood that they were unholy and God was holy and so they were cut off. They were separated from God. But what happens next is the demonstration of the nature of God. Listen carefully. God seeks and saves the lost. His response to sinful man was to seek after him. It's in his very nature and it's important that we understand this attribute of our God. Have you ever heard the phrase, seek a sensitive church? Nonsense. No one seeks after God until they're a believer. That's not my opinion, that scripture. Romans 3.11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. See, it's God who seeks, it's God who finds, and it's God who saves. If you say, I chose Jesus, oh, God chose you. So how does God save in this chapter? Well, let's return to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Do you see this? God's response to sin was, was to stoop down and to cover the shame of his loved and, and called and chosen children. That's what he began to do for us here right in Chapter 3, immediately after the fall. The language here is incredibly deep. You see, God did not simply hide their shame behind fig leaves. He truly clothed them. He covered them with garments of skin. And this word cover, it is a strong word. It's the Hebrew word which we translate as atonement. Covering. That's what atonement means. 
That's why this was a prefiguring of Christ. You see, to cover them with skins, what had to happen? An animal had to die. And animals have not committed sins. The animal was innocent. And this was the very first death in the world. And at whose hand was it? God's. God's initiative. He killed the innocent animal and clothed his creations, Adam and Eve. We've all tried this fig leaf thing. We've, there's two ways. We've tried to earn our way to heaven, or we've tried to self-medicate, or both. But you can't earn your way to heaven. Neither work. You cannot atone for your own sin by other, uh, by other good works. Why? Because sin must be punished, the sin itself. Let's try this theory for a second. Imagine this is now a, a courtroom. Here's the judge. I'm the man accused of... Um, Strangling someone to death. How do you plead? Guilty. Okay, sentencing. Yep, yep. Before we get there, Your Honor, um, I, d- I did strangle that guy to death. Um, but I, I do donate blood three times a year, and I volunteer at the homeless shelter on the weekends. If he goes, oh, I, I didn't know. What a good, what a good guy. O- off you go. What? Scandal. Scandal. This cannot happen. Why? Because what was done needs to be punished. You can't substitute something good that you have done because you are a criminal. You can't substitute good things for what the bad things that you have done when you are a criminal. Your works are meaningless. And so it is in our situation before God, the judge. Our sins need to be atoned for by a sinless substitute. Uh, On the other hand, we try and self-medicate, perhaps. But let's be honest. Whether you've tried to cover your guilt and shame with the bottom of a whiskey bottle, or with that ecstasy pill, or with that sleeping around, or with that endless binge-watching of series on TV, or with that pornography, you know that in the end it fell woefully short of covering your shame. And in fact, it made it worse. We've tried the good works, we've tried the drugs, we've tried the alcohol, tried the career obsession, tried the eating, tried the shopping, tried the gambling, all sorts of other compostable activities. But they do not work, we're still left with this guilt and shame. It's only that which is provided for us externally, that at the expense of an innocent sacrifice can truly cover our guilt and our shame. And this is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Look, I hear people saying all the time, well, you know, I put Jesus on the cross. God put Jesus on the cross. Don't claim the effect of God's grace in your salvation for yourself. It was God who sacrificed his son for you. Only by God, only by his gracious work can we have our shame covered. It's important to notice that God, as I said, God did this of his own initiative. Adam and Eve were alone and hopeless. They tried the fig leaf thing, but they couldn't cover themselves. So God covered them with true clothing, true skins. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, it says we had no hope. We were alone in the world and without God. But we, although we were once far off, 
have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, so, so far we've seen man's repentance uh, in, their, in their fear of what they had done and its implications for their relationship of God, with God. And we've seen the atonement, the covering that God has made for them. So let's just look at the final two areas, which are man's faith and God's provision of eternal security. And back in verse 20, we have a picture of Adam's faith. Where do I see that? Well, if we look back to verse 15, we see God's promise that um, the offspring, the seed of Eve, will bring forth a savior who will crush the head of the serpent. And, and um, at this point, remember, so God has said that Eve will be a mother, right? That, she, um, that um, all these people will come from her and finally the savior who will crush the head of the serpent. But at that point, she wasn't the mother of anyone. And in fact, she knew she was going to die. How do I know that? Genesis 2.17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it or touch it, you shall surely die. And we see this affirmed in Ezekiel 18.20. The soul who sins shall die. And again, Romans 6.26. For the wages of sin is death. But Adam named the woman Eve, his wife Eve. And Eve means the mother of all the living. So, she was going to die. She had sinned. She wasn't a mother yet, but her husband named her the mother of all the living because of what God had said. So, where have we heard this before? So, Adam trusted God. Abraham trusted God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that's precisely what we have going on here. Adam believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We see the exercising of faith. And so God provided the covering, the atonement, the righteousness. And that's why we say salvation has always been by grace through faith. Nothing changed at the New Testament in terms of the way in which we receive salvation. It's that we got clarity of the name by which we receive salvation. And that the atonement itself was made. But all the sacrifices that looked forward to that sacrifice still operated on the base that people were saved by grace, by God's grace, through faith in his covenantal promises. It's always been the same. And what about eternal security? Well, let's look at verse 23 and 24. God sent them out of the garden and placed the cherubim there and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Why? Have you ever wondered this before when you've read that part? I think, why did he shut them out? That's right. Verse 22 says, Lest he reach out his hand and take also and eat of the tree of life and eat and live forever. What would be the problem here? Exactly. He would live forever in a state of sin, in guilt and shame. He would suffer eternally, being evil, having no portion with God, consciously tormented by the wickedness and rebellion of himself, having no hope, being the living dead. This is hell. That is what hell is, folks. That's what it would be like. It's an unquenchable fire, unceasing evil, wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And God was not going to allow that to happen to those he had determined to save. So he shut them out from the way to hell and kept them safe to bring about his redemptive purposes for them. That's the essence of eternal security, that the God who saves also keeps. That's not my opinion. That's scripture. Romans 8, 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, saved. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Now, what does that mean? Those who God justified, he glorified. It means what Jude 124 says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That means whom God has saved as a love gift for his son, he will have presented to him on the day of judgment. So if there are those of you who have heard that you can lose your salvation, you won't find that in scripture. But what you will find is that those who end up having been professing Christians for their lives and you do not see them in heaven, Jesus says, they went out from us because they were not of us. They hung around, they used his name, they did a couple of seemingly good things, but they were imposters. Judas initially looked like a Christian, but he didn't lose his salvation, he never had it. He died with the heart of stone with which he was born. But those of you here today who are trusting in Jesus Christ for your righteousness because he has made you alive and given you a new heart, you will be presented to God on the day of judgment, spotless and blameless by Christ's sacrifice for you. Look, again, John MacArthur phrased it brilliantly when he said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Look, we even sing this. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and keep it. Seal it for thy courts above. The Holy Spirit is the seal, the guarantee of your inheritance. Take my heart, Lord, and seal it because I'm prone to wonder. That's the testimony of Scripture. That's why we also sing the song, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Okay, so what, what we've dealt with so far is immensely practical. It concerns the way to life. But there is a specific topic I'd like to zoom in on at this point, and it's specifically about how we deal with guilt and shame. This is the way people usually tend to deal with it. If you go walking into a Christian bookstore you are most likely entering a dangerous hive of heresy, a graveyard of faith in God. Without serious discernment, you're at great risk of buying a book that is essentially worldly popular psychology and self-help, repackaged with Jesus' name and with a couple of scriptures tossed in. These books will tell you that you should be living your best life now. They will tell you that Jesus wants to make everyone fabulously rich, perfectly healthy, and that no one deserves to live in guilt and shame. But the biblical account is precisely the opposite. The Bible teaches that everybody on this planet who was ever born deserves to live in guilt and shame. Why? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Guilty, ashamed, woefully short of holiness, having no merit. But the Bible doesn't end with the diagnosis. What follows immediately after our text is the message by which I was saved. It is the message that fuels me as a preacher. And it is the message by which you must be saved. 
Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 3, from verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood, a substitute, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his patience, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is why Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Jesus has wiped away the guilt and the corresponding shame that comes from that cause for all of his people. Wonderful people, it is in God's nature to seek and to save. It is in his nature to justify the unrighteous. He sets off after rebellious and unrighteous sinners. And Ephesians 2 tells us that they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Yet God made them alive together with Christ. And this is why we sing, and I think we're going to sing just now, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So apart from Christ, we should live in guilt and shame. But this is good news. We do not have to be apart from Jesus Christ. Ultimately, you do not need a self-help book. You have your diagnosis here. You don't need psychology. You need to hear and believe the gospel. Unless Unless you believe the gospel, unless it takes root in your heart, you will not rid yourself of sin. And so you will not truly rid yourself of shame. You will simply shift it around into the most manageable, the least objectionable format. And you'll convince yourself, you'll violate your conscience. And you'll say, I can cope with this. I can cover this up. I can do something to make it better. But it will be simply like putting a nice tombstone on a grave. The body still rots underneath. And I'm serious. To deal with your shame, you have to deal with your sin. It's like having a temperature when you're really sick. You can wrap yourself in an ice blanket, but you still have a deadly infection. And now, I think we all know the effect that guilt and shame have, have on us. Uh, and Kliegel said something the other day, which is just such an astute phrase. Shame is the thief of intimacy. It cuts you off. This isn't only true of how we relate to God. Each of you know that it's true about your relationships with humans. You know it. And when you're living in shame, you're living apart from others. You're divided. You're living a double life. It's taxing. It'll kill you. But Jesus is not foreign to shame. In fact, if you trust in him, he in fact bore your very shame on the cross as he died. He's the God who covers up sin, who covers up guilt. That is why Jesus said we should clothe the naked, because he clothed us when we were naked. 
What a wonderful God. We, we don't have to hide because he knows it all. We are exposed before him. And the more we can see the shamefulness of our sin and our corruption, the more precious and sweet the saving grace of Jesus Christ becomes. We have no claim to his love as sinful people, but in Christ we do. We are his loved children. Did, did you know that he loves his children the same way he loves Jesus Christ? That's not my words, that's Jesus Christ himself. John seventeen twenty three, So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Hallelujah. So run to him, he's the only safe place. Fling yourself on Christ. And so we, we've now looked at how Christ dealt with the root cause of shame for believers. Their sin. And, and we see how we can come to him for healing from the shame we feel. But he's given his children another great grace. His church. He's provided for us a family. And what is the function of this family in the context of shame? Well, Galatians 6 2 says, Bear one another's burdens. And another, James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, what this does not mean, does not mean, is that people have the power to forgive you. And so if you confess your sins, they can forgive you and you will be healed. There is an entire global antichrist false church that operates on this heresy. What this does mean is confess your sins to one another so that your burden may be shared by your brothers and sisters. What this does mean is confess your sins to one another so that the devil does not have ground of accusation against you. What this does mean is confess your sins to one another so that you can pray for one another and so that you may come to know and trust that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. And so as you begin drawing to close, I'd, I'd just like to summarize and address each of the groups of people that I feel in this room, that there are no other groups than these. This is some broad categories, but it encompasses everyone. To believers here today who are not living in unrepentant sin and who are struggling with their guilt and shame, today's message for you is that Christ has objectively, finally dealt with your guilt and therefore you have no need of shame. Come to him. See his love for you. Lean your head against his chest. Feel his embrace. Receive the grace given to you in Christ and in the church. And, that was, and put down that shame which Christ bore for you in his very body. To those who are, are not believers who are here today and are experiencing guilt and shame, listen to me carefully. That guilt and shame is a grace from God because you are recognizing the seriousness of your sin. The eyes of your heart have been opened by God's grace to see your need for a savior. And I hope today that you have understood that the wages of sin is death. But if you have seen and heard the wonderful news about this God and his gospel, you, you will see that he's the God who will not turn away any that repent. And so if you repent, he will save you. He will cover your shame. And you will live with him forever in heaven. And the final group, anyone living in unrepentant sin, 
with no guilt and no shame. Whether you claim to be a believer or if you're an unbeliever. To you, in the name of Christ, I warn you that you are in the gravest danger. Your hearts are hardened and you are set up against God. Don't think for a moment that you can live in and love your sin and get away with it. Whether you claim to be a Christian or not, as Charles Spurgeon says, if you can sin and not weep over it, then you are an heir of hell. Whether you claim to be a Christian or not, whether you attend church or not, I assure you with all the authority in Scripture that if you continue in this way, you will not stand on the day of judgment. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will burn up in the fire of God's holiness like a tumbleweed in a felt fire. So hear once more the command of Christ. Repent and believe the gospel and you shall be saved. He will not turn you away. And so we say with scripture, today is the day of salvation. And so if you have come here today with guilt and shame, then I say to you, cast it upon the Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that in that mock trial, in the whipping In the taunting and the jeering, in the scorn, he was bearing your shame. And when he was nailed to a cross and made nothing for your sin, the Son of God humiliated and left to die. He died there and he was cut off from God. And God's wrath was satisfied so that the stain and the stench and the rebellion, the treason... And the blasphemy of all your sin was crucified with them. So that in believing in Christ's sacrifice for you, you are washed white as snow, free from guilt. So you no longer have guilt and shame and condemnation. Come to Jesus Christ and he will give you peace. So if this is you, do please come and see someone. Unbeliever or not, whether it is for prayer or with questions or, or, or both, myself and others will be somewhere around the front here after we pray together now. So I petition you, come and deal with your guilt and shame. Discover a Savior who has already done so. Closing prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father, in the words of John Newton, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. I thank you for your life-giving and comforting word to us today. I pray that you would cause your word to quicken hearts to repentance and faith. And that those struggling with shame would be lifted to the heights of the joys that are in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And may his peace and joy be multiplied in your hearts with all thanksgiving. You are dismissed. Thank you. We will have a time of, yeah, a time of worship and please come forward for any prayer if you need it.